morning again. Um, at this time, the children and youth are dismissed. I think children can go out through those doors to the back, um, and the youth will head out to the back as well through those back doors. Um, this morning, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Luke. Um, kind of uh, to sum up the whole book, we said it's good news for the lost. So each week, we find a different group of lost people that um, we're going to see how Jesus bring good news to them. And so, yeah, it's good morning. We're grateful to be able to worship together. And our focus this morning is going to be good news to the stranger. Now, stranger is a word that um, appears in the, both Old Testament and New Testament. Um, it is a word that, you know, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, actually is, is gar or geth, right? And, and the, the significance of this word is that it's, it's foundational to not just the Mosaic law, but to how God wants us to interact with each other. In fact, Luke 19, 33 to 34 is founded um, um, on this principle. And so the verse in Luke 19.33 says this, when a foreigner or a stranger or an alien, an outsider, resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now Leviticus 19, 33, 34 is foundational to not only, you know, the Mosaic law. It's foundational not only to Jews. You know, I would argue that this is foundational to even Muslims. And I think it's foundational to especially us as Christians. Why? Well, the gear that is speak of here in this passage literally means temporary residents, right? Foreigners within the kingdom or people who have no rights or whose rights have been taken away. Now, the NIV is a bit nice to us here. When the NIV says, do not mistreat them, that's not the proper translation of the word. At least that's not the primary translation of the word. The word in Hebrew is yana, right? And yana literally means do not oppress them. Do not oppress the stranger, the alien, the foreigner among you. This is a strong command from God. It's not given to us as a suggestion, right? It's not saying try not to oppress the people who are different than you. Try not to oppress the foreigner, the stranger. No, it says do not oppress them. In fact, then it's, it's the, 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 the Mosaic law and Yahweh builds on this by saying not only are you not to oppress the stranger, you ought to treat them as Ezra, right? What is Ezra? The NIV does well here to call it native born. And the idea here is don't treat the stranger like a stranger, treat them like a citizen. Don't treat the outsider like an outsider, treat them like an insider. Don't treat anyone who is in the kingdom of God, in the land of God, as an outsider, as a stranger, as a foreigner. In fact, treat them as a native born, as a full citizen of the kingdom. And then God keeps building on this. He says, in fact, not only do you not oppress them, not only do you treat them as a citizen, I want you to love the neighbor, love the stranger, love the foreigner, love the gear as you love yourself. Why? For you were gathered in Egypt. So God calls them back to say, remember how you were oppressed, right? And no Israelite sitting in the assembly or even in 2023 today will look at Egypt and say, like, we were mistreated in Egypt, right? See, this is why the NIV falls short to say do not mistreat. Because no Israelite will be like, yeah, we were mistreated for 400 years. Imagine in our setting going to an African-American and be like, you were just mistreated in America. <laughs> just a little mistreatment, right? It is oppression. Do not oppress the gear, for you were gear in Egypt, for you were once oppressed. You were once strangers and foreigners and, and exiles. You were once in the land and taken advantage of. Why? Because you can experience what they experience. Don't do it to someone else. And if you need a greater reason why, for I am Yahweh. 
I am the God who was, the God who is, the God who will be. I am the God of all eternity. I am the God of the stranger and the citizen. I am the God of you all. Do not mistreat them. And again, Leviticus 19 has a bunch of verses and a bunch of uh, commands, and it's dealing with how we are to interact with one another. In fact, that's founded on verse 2 in Leviticus 19, which God says, listen, the reason I need you all to do all this is why? Be holy, because I, Yahweh, am holy. So how we treat one another, how we love one another, how we interact with the strangers and the aliens and the foreigners among us should be based on the holiness of our God. The challenge to us is that we ourselves may not feel like loving the stranger, the alien, the foreigner. The challenge to us is we ourselves may not have a family that wants us to love the stranger, the alien, and foreigner. The challenge to us as Americans Challenge to us as Americans is we talk a lot about our polarization, our ostracization, and how different we are politically. You know where America is united? Foreign policy. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, you follow the same basic U.S. foreign policy, especially in light of Israel. And so when we think about this week and all the news that we were bombarded with and everything that came at us this week, may we not be dependent on ourselves. May we not be dependent on our family. May we not be dependent on news outlets. May we not even be dependent on our government to frame how we are to think about Israel and Palestine. May we be dependent on the law of God, which says do not mistreat, do not oppress, do not treat the foreigner, the stranger, the alien, as anyone outside the kingdom. Love them as you love yourself. That's how I think all of us should be framing this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The same way we should frame Ukraine and Russia. The same way we should frame when we hear about all these coup d'etats that's happening in Africa every other month. This is how we should do it. Do not oppress. Do not support the oppression. Do not support the violence. Now, when it comes to Israel and Palestine, it's maybe the most complicated one of our time. And partially because there are certain truths that we tend to not hold as dear or at the same time. This is very complicated. Number one that I want us to hold on to to kind of build on these complications is that not just Jews, but Arabs and Palestinians both have an ethnic claim to that land. And it starts off even in the Bible. For the Jews, right, they went and took the land of Canaan as the promised land. But guess what? You can't claim something as yours if it didn't already belong to someone else. So you see, this tension isn't just what started in 1947, 1948. It's not what just started in 1967. And trust me, it's not just what started in October 2023. This is an old, ancient conflict. The Jews and the land of Israel was founded in Canaan, which belonged to the Arabs or, or what became the Palestinians. And Judah and Israel was formed out of Canaan. This is a long-standing beef, if you will. Furthermore, it is not just the Jews that have an ancient claim to this land. I talk about the Palestinians. They're not just Arabs. First mention we think we have them in scripture is, is what? Philistia. <laughs> the Philistines. David and Goliath, right? You remember that story. These are people who were in the land as long as Israel has been in the land. Some would argue they were in the land before the Israelites got there. That's something we must remember. In fact, it's not even until the Romans come along and when they put everyone in provinces, there's an emperor by the name of Hadrian who calls the area Syro-Palestine. 
So that's kind of where the name Palestine goes from Philistia in the Bible to Palestine when Hadrian gives it that name. Furthermore, if you look at Arabic scholars, which would make sense because we are Western scholars in the West, which means no matter how hard we try, everything we know about them is what they've told us or what someone else has told us. But you look at people who are on the ground, the Arabic scholars who've been there for generations and have writings for generations, they call that area that we call the Middle East, they call it what? The Levant. You know what the Levant encompassed? Not just Israel. Not just what is Palestine, right? It it encompassed uh, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon too. So to say that the, the, the one person has an ancient claim would be wrong because they both have an ancient claim to the land. This is an ancient tension that goes bar far. And none of us do any favors by exalting one group above the other because they both have the same claim to the same land. Now, if we want to build on that, we also have to add in the simple fact that historically, <laughs> we have a moral necessity for a Jewish homeland. Why is that? Because when you go back to the Philistines, or even before them, the Egyptians, the Egyptians, the Philistines, the, the, the Assyrians when they come, the Babylonians when they come, right? Later when the Greeks come and the Romans come, or if you bring it here to the West, when the Russians come, when the United Kingdom comes, when, when, when the Polish come, right? When you go back everywhere that Jewish people have lived historically, enough to number, they have been tried to be exterminated. And I use that word on purpose because that's the word these governments have used. Every single where they've lived, people have literally tried to take them out. A lot of us go to the 20th century and the Holocaust. I wish there was only one Holocaust. I wish there was no Holocaust. But historically, all these groups have tried to take them out. So you can understand from their mindset why they need a safe space, why they need their own land. But guess what? Just like it's a historic moral necessity for the Jewish homeland, you know what I'm going to say, right? There's a historic ancient moral necessity, what, for the Palestinians on this land too. It is not just that, hey, we give this land to you, but there's people already there. And and the other thing I think is really, really helpful for all of us is to realize this. This is going to blow your mind. You are ready for this one. Make sure you put your seatbelt on. Israel and Israel's government... (laughs) This is going to blow your mind. It's going to be pro-Israel. Shocking, I know. But that means everything you hear from Israel will make them look good. Here's the harder part for us. We as Americans forget the fact. But I would argue that Israel might be America's number one ally. And that means that everything we hear from America, again, it doesn't matter if you trust Fox News or MSNBC, they're united on U.S. foreign policy. You might disagree on internal beef, but when it comes to our message to the world, they're united. And because Israel is America's number one ally... What you hear from your news people, what you hear from whatever people you trust on that TV, they're going to be united to what? To make Israel look good. Now, here's another one that will blow your mind. Palestinians, right, are going to be what? Put on the seatbelt again, pro-Palestine. So that means that anyone who's an ally of Palestine, when they report stuff, are going to what? They're going to make Palestine look good. But these are things we cannot deny. If you look at the the quarry that was made in the 40s and the land that was parceled out to Israel, from that till 2005, the land of the Palestinians has shrunk anywhere from 50 to 90 percent, depending on who you trust. 
This land that they said, okay, this is now you, Israel. This is now you, Palestine. It has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. That's undeniable. No one can deny that, right? The second thing is that there's closure on Palestine. And I don't think most of us understand this Gaza Strip thing. Egypt is one of Israel's strongest allies. They've blocked the border. In fact, Israel determines what comes in and out. This is before any bombings this time. This is before war at this time. They have a policy where they determine everything that comes in and out, which not only affects the economy and gives Palestine the highest unemployment in the world, right? The people were confined to building underground tunnels to get in medical supplies and food because Israel said we need to put them on a diet. So they determined even what they ate and what was allowed in the country. And when the the, the people were bringing stuff in that way, they go, well, no, we got to protect from the terrorists. So you know what they did? They flooded out those tunnels and blocked them. So again, you can't deny it. You might say this is what they're doing to protect themselves, right? But this is what's happening. Just like with the, the, the Palestinians. You can understand that. If they live in this place, right, why some of them, especially those who don't follow Jesus the Christ, might get to a point where they want to fight back. Again, I will never stand up here and and say, yay, violence. But I want us to understand, even in our own country, we all love Martin Luther King. There's a lot of African Americans who love the Nation of Islam and the Black Panthers too. Not everyone was saying give peace a chance. Some people were tired of being smacked down and stomped on and destroyed. So I want us to understand that when we wade into these waters... It is a very complicated situation. And so where do we enter in? That's the question for us this morning. Where do we enter in? I think the first place we can enter in is condemning all violence, especially violence against innocents. Israel says what started this war was an attack that that killed 260 Israelis. And they said that's the most Israelis killed in an attack since the days of the Holocaust. We can grieve that. But sisters and brothers, we also got to grieve that since that one event, almost twice as many Palestinians have died. And what we ought to be grieving is that the people dying aren't just the soldiers who are shooting guns at each other, aren't just the terrorists. It's women, it's children, it's people who have nothing to do with this war other than being born in the wrong place, whether they're Israeli or Palestine. That's who's dying. And as Christians who are commanded by our God to love the stranger, the alien, to not oppress, we ought to be on the side of the victims. We ought to be on the side of the people who are literally dying. We ought to be on the side of those who are oppressed. And so that's the work we do. We must condemn all violence. So now now what do we do? We condemn the violence. I think we also ought to be more actively praying for peace. My friend Thea reminded me this week, he says, you know, as kids who grew up in the Civil War in Liberia, we remember stepping over dead bodies on the way to school. And when you have to step over those dead bodies, you don't care who's wrong or right. You don't care what side's more righteous or who has the biggest gun. All you see is pain and death. And that's the story of so many Palestinians for generations. That's even the story of so many Israelis for generations. We ought to be praying for peace. Because the thing we need to remember is that God's presence is not dependent on our feeling. What you feel about God doesn't limit who God is. 
You may not feel that God is in the middle of that battle, but God's there. You may feel all alone, but God is still carrying you. God is bigger than what you feel. God is bigger than what you experience. God is bigger than what you know. We ought to be praying with the kind of faith that says our God is good enough to intercede here. Our God is enough so that his presence can be felt by Israelis and Palestinians. And while we pray for that kind of peace, may we also pray for healing. One of my best friends in the world, maybe my brother really, he has parents right now who are in Israel. And he's conflicted. Because he hears too much of the rhetoric of we got to fight for ourselves no matter what. You know why he's conflicted? Because he believes in Jesus. And the Jesus he follows says, I ought to love them even if they are my enemies. I ought to love them even if they are the strangers. I ought to love them even if they are the foreigners. Why? Because this is the commandment of our God. What do we do with that? We pray for peace. But sisters and brothers, we also ought to be praying for healing. It is not bombs that will end these wars. It is not guns that will end these wars. It is not the goodwill of Israel, Palestine, or even the United States that will end these these wars. But what might end it are the prayers of the saints. What might end it are the Christians on the ground who are willing to love the stranger among them. What will end it is faith. Faith like we see in Luke chapter 7. Faith that we see in the centurion. Remember before the Samaritan story, you know, I always implore everyone to stop calling it the good Samaritan because that betrays our bias. If we told that same story and said the good black person, no one would be like, well, that's a good story. We'd all say probably change the title, right? If we say the good white guy, you might, ooh, I don't know about that one either, right? The good Latino guy is still not good, right? So just drop it, right? It's the Samaritan story or the, the story that Jesus adds on to it. Because Jesus says, it's not only should you love the ger among you, the foreigner, the stranger, the alien, I want you to love them as yourself. I want you to love them as your neighbor. I want you to love them as a part of my community. And what does Jesus do? But promise life to all who love their neighbors. In Luke 10, before the Samaritan story, it goes like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus says, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. What does Jesus say? Jesus, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live in the heart of death. Jesus promises life. In the heart of destruction, Jesus promises redemption. In the heart of darkness, Jesus promises light. And so the word for all of us is that we can pray for peace with the faith that even the centurion shows that our God's presence will be present for all. We can pray for healing, that our God will touch everyone. And if we want to know what it looks like to truly love the gear, to love the stranger, to love the alien among us. I think Luke has a story for us here in chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Luke chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 1 to 10. We'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well. Starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Then there a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. 
When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the kind of faith that our God wants from us. The faith of the gear, the faith of the stranger, the faith that does miracles. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for your blessing. We thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. We thank you so much that even in these hard, complicated things, you call us to rely on you. So God, we pray this morning, whether it's Israel, Palestine, or our worldly wars that are happening, or oppression that we see all around us, Lord, may we fully trust and rely on you to be the God who's sovereign, the God who moves, the God who intervenes, the God who will carry us through. And Lord, we thank you for the peace that you promise. We look back at the peace you give us between us and God through the death of your death on Calvary's cross. We look at the peace that you give to each other that we can not only be reconciled to God, we can be reconciled to one another. But Lord, now you have called us to be your peace, to be your peacemakers. So we pray that we can be people who are dedicated to bring peace in our world. We can be people who are dedicated to be bridge builders, to bring people together, that we may be reminded that we were once enemies who had now been made friends, that we were once children of darkness who have now been made children of light, that we were once gear and foreigners and strangers, and now we are citizens of heaven, all because of the work that you've done. So, Lord, we pray today that you give us a faith that's fully reliant on you, that you give us a faith that's reliant on you to move, to intercede, to intervene, and to redeem. We pray that you give us a faith that says, yes, you are my sister, yes, you are my brother, and in Jesus' name, the kingdom will come. In your holy and precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen? Amen. One of the things I love about this passage is how Luke begins the passage. He begins it with, you know, when Jesus finished saying all these things to the people who are listening, he entered Capernaum. If you're following along in Luke chapter 6, you have Jesus giving the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, right? So Jesus gives this big speech, right? And he can't wait. As soon as he's done, the first thing Luke throws in there is like, he went home to rest. Capernaum is, is not only Jesus' home ministry base, it's a place of rest. And I get that. Because one of the things I look forward to every week is 115. And I know you silly Americans are just like, oh, he watches football. No, 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 no. The football watches me. What happens is 115 is I go on the couch and the kids are old enough now to entertain themselves. Their mother has been old enough for years to entertain herself. And what happens is I sit on the couch and I have my Capernaum, right? Like after a long week, after a long Sunday, I just sit there and I'm like, ooh, this is great, right? And I might nap. 
You know, I might nap and yeah, snack. You know, I might nap snack at the same time. It's just my world, right? It's my world. It's my Capernaum. But what I love the most about why Luke throws us in there is he doesn't have to. But it's a reminder to us that if Jesus himself took time to rest, how much more should we? If Jesus himself says after this great big sermon, after this great big speech that's going to change the, the world forever, I'm going to go home and just kick back a little bit. How much more should we? Jesus doesn't just talk about Sabbath. He models rest. He models Sabbath. How much more should we? But what do they say? There's no rest for the weary. So Luke says, yeah, Jesus went home to rest. But guess what happened? And what happened is that a centurion servant was sick. And word comes to Jesus. Now, we don't know much about the centurion servant. We don't even know if it was a male or a female. We don't even know, like, what kind of sickness. We don't know anything. We don't even know the name of the servant. But what we know is that the servant was valued highly by the centurion. How do we know this? Well, Roman culture <laughs> and Roman law, again, the NIV is nice here to call this a servant, right? The original Greek says slave. And so Roman law means that as a slave or someone enslaved to the household, you don't get a day off. You don't get vacation. You don't get to say, hey, I have a sick day today. I'm not going to come in, right? I'm not feeling too good. So there's that aspect of it, right? Like there's no HR department for the enslaved peoples. So there's that aspect of it. Secondly, remember, this is a military guy. <laughs> Secondly, as a Roman citizen, if one of your enslaved people couldn't do the job, you were free to fire them. Literally, too. Right? Like, like that whole, like, I don't know how, ni how nicely to say this, but if they weren't doing the job and it cost you too much to keep them alive, you could literally kill them. Because in that culture, they held no value except what they can give to you. We never do that today, right? We never give people value based on what they can do to us. We never do that. Just the ancients do that, right? But like in Roman culture, you could literally kill this person. So the fact that this centurion is like, not only do I like this person, I value them, I want them to be healed, that's remarkable to everyone listening. They'd be like, wait, what? This is an enslaved person. Like, why would he do all this work to save this person? In fact, he's on the deathbed. And so then you start asking questions. And if it's not, what do we know about this centurion servant or enslaved person? What do we know about the centurion? Well, a lot. Now, this might shock some of you, but I'm not an expert on Roman military history. Right? Shocking, I know. But what I've read and what I've been told is that the centurion are kind of like middle rank. Right? They're not commanders and they're not soldiers. They're middle rank. In fact, centurion actually means about 100 century. That's where we get the word from. But something about the Romans, and again, we never do this as Americans and modern people. We're too smart for this. But the Romans used to fudge numbers all the time. In fact, it's hard to find any military historian from the Romans who will say that centurions commanded more than 60 or 80. But centurion means 100. So I guess they went to math class, and after you pass 51, you round to 100. Right? So like centurion, but he commanded 60 to 80. The other thing about the, uh, the centurion is that as the middle manager, right, you would have someone that he reports to. Now, most of us, you know, we're not in the military. Most of us even go to work and have jobs where we get things like opinions, 
right? Like, your boss says, hey, you should do this. You're like, well, why are we doing this? You can ask, hopefully, <laughs> shouldn't assume, right? Hopefully you can ask that question. Why are we doing this? Why is this important? That's not how military works. That's not how military works. In fact, I can relate to this because the household I grew up in, when they said jump, I didn't get to say how high. I get to be in the air. And while I'm in the air, to ask them, is this high enough? That's closer to how military works. When you get a command from on high, you don't question it. You just do it. In fact, they spend a good amount of time breaking your personal will so that you do not question, that you just listen. So this man understands authority. So not only is he under the commander who was probably in Caesarea, which is like 50 miles away, but he had people under him that directly related to him. But here's the other thing about this man. He was Roman, which means he was the oppressor. There's no way you can sugarcoat this. He not only represented the oppression of the Jewish people in their own land, he had the power to do whatever he wanted to them. He ruled that land with the power to do anything that he wanted. In fact, how centurions were valued, one historian called them the backbone of the Roman military machine. You know what that means? That means if you wanted to get stuff done, you ain't called the commander. He's on retirement at the villa eating hummus. You know what I mean? That's what he's doing, right? And he put his time in. If you wanted something done, you go to middle, middle rank and you get the centurions and they would get the job done. Now, this area near Jerusalem has been volatile for generations, as we talked about this morning. So he was there to do a job. He's not only the oppressor, but he's there to literally command. So, but not only is he a Roman, we find that he's the rare Roman who actually not only cares for this servant, but he seems to love the Jewish people too. So much so. You know, I think it's interesting what Luke does here, right? Luke and the gospel writers don't really talk a lot, or maybe ever, about the elders <laughs> and the Pharisees and the Sadducees respecting Jesus, right? Like, they don't use, it's not a respect relationship, at least not in the way that happens to this girl, this stranger, this foreigner. But he so loved these people that they're willing to go to Jesus on his behalf. That's testimony. That's witness. That based on how he lived his life and how much he loved the people, when he was in a time of need, they did not hesitate. Some of these same people might have been arguing with Jesus yesterday. But when their friend was in danger, when their friend was, was at his wit's end, they took it to the Lord. And so this rare Roman is remarkable, too, because here's the thing. A lot of historians and commenters, they struggle with this. They're like, well, we just don't know if he converted to Judaism. I'm going to be bold. I don't think he converted to Judaism. But I think he chose to follow Jesus. I think this is a man who had seen much of the world, right? Even today, if you're in the military, you get to travel, right? He has seen much of the world. He's seen ancient religions. He knew the Jewish religions, the Roman religions, the different places he's been. But there was something about this Jesus that stuck out. There was something about this Jesus that made him believe. How do we know he believed? He sends these people to say, listen, all Jesus got to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. So he may not have converted to Judaism, but I think there's enough in the text to say that this man was a follower of Jesus. And so what happens is this man who's respected by the elders, loved by the Jews, he even built a synagogue. That's important too, because a lot of times we read that, we're like, well, he must have been wealthy. He's not. He's not a commander eating hummus at the pita in Caesarea. 
He's in Capernaum. He's middle rank, which means that if he built this synagogue, he built it out of his own pocket. He built it sacrificially, and he probably built it not with the blessing of Rome. I want us to think about that for a second. That this person was so all in with who he thought the, the God of the Old Testament is that he was willing to sacrifice financially for the belief that this kingdom should go forward. So you see this person isn't just saying, I believe, with his words. You see it with his love. You see it with his actions. You see it with his love for the people, the land, and now even the servant. That's why he's respected. And in fact, when Jesus hears of this, he's moved to go. And so as Jesus is going and marching towards his house, you find that the centurion now is moved. So he sends a second group to Jesus. And this is the part I find really fascinating. Because he's so moved that he says, listen, Jesus, <laughs> you're Jesus. Like, I don't think you should come to my, like, my home. Like, should, you should not even be in my house. Like, my home is too humble for you to dwell in my house. And I don't think we get this on several levels. On one level, when we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. Like, that's a miracle that I don't think we, we, we stand on a lot. But the Holy Spirit comes and makes home with us. So we can't really understand what he's saying. But this man also knew his culture. And in that culture and in that place, as a rabbi, as a respected rabbi, which, again, I would argue the biblical writers don't really think Jesus is that respected. But let's just go with it. As a respected rabbi, you are not to enter the home of a Gentile. And certainly not a Roman who's our oppressor. So when you think about this man's faith, what he's saying here isn't just, hey, I'm too humble, you don't come into my house. But he's not willing to let Jesus come into his house because he doesn't want anything. He doesn't want to do anything that might taint the name of Jesus. I want you to think about that for a second. <laughs> like, he has so much faith that he's like, listen, if this will taint your name, if this will make you look bad, if this will turn people away, I don't want to put you in that situation. That challenges me because I wish that's how I lived all the time. I wish before I said stuff, I'd be like, I don't want to taint the name of Jesus, right? Like, I wish, like, I had that internal clock before I do stuff. But look at the faith of the centurion that he's saying, listen, I don't want anything to taint the name of Jesus. I don't want anything to taint your ministry. In fact, don't even come to my house. Why? because I am a man under authority and I know you can just say it where you are and my servant will be healed. I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. That's why I'm sending these Jews to you. I'm sending people who I think can relate to you. Like you talk to them to be my intermediary because I don't feel worthy to stand before you. And it's at this that Jesus is amazed. Amazed. And that encourages me. It encourages me because it tells me <laughs> That it's possible that our faith can amaze God. It's possible that our faith and trust in God can be so amazing to God that he stops and says, wow, that should encourage you. So many of us think of faith as something that's automatic, right? I believe in God. I follow God. I'm trying my best. I'm just doing that, right? No, no, no. In this story, we learn. That when we fully trust God, we fully give it all to God, we fully put our belief in God, Jesus is amazed. Do you have the kind of faith that's not only telling other people about Jesus and, and bringing them and testifying to them about who God is, but you have the kind of faith that God himself stops and is amazed at your faith. And the centurion says what? Say the word and my servant will be healed. 
not only does he understand authority, he understands power. There's a difference there. Authority just means that I trust that you can do it. Power means you're going to do it. Authority means that, like, you have the dominion over these things to do it. Power means that you only had to be here. And, again, in that culture, I know we don't think about it like this, right? But in that culture, it's a miracle if you're on your sick bed and I come, I put my hands on you, I pray for you, and you're healed. That's a miracle. But if you happen to be five miles down the road, ten miles down the road, twenty miles down the road, and you just speak the word, that's a greater miracle. Now, me, I am not partial. If I'm on my deathbed and they put hands on me and I'm healed, Praise the Lord. If I'm on my deathbed and y'all in Monrovia, Liberia, praying for me and I'm healed, I'm still going to praise the Lord. I'm not partial. I don't think miracles are bigger or smaller. I'll take either, right? But in that culture, they believe that you're more powerful the further you are away. And what I love about this story is after Jesus is amazed, Luke throws in a little barb here, right? This is what Luke does. Luke says, like, and Jesus turned to the crowd. Who's the crowd? It's the first crew that came to get Jesus. It's the second crew that came to get Jesus. And maybe people who struggle along. It's not a lot of people. But Luke says Jesus turns to these leaders. And what does he say in their face? He says, man, I haven't seen such a faith in all of Israel. That's a barb. Right? Like that's not meant to make them feel good. Right? That's like y'all would do all this on behalf of him. And y'all don't even got the faith he has. Like, that's wild, right? Jesus says this thing, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And what I love about this story is they don't tell you how he gets healed. They don't say Jesus stopped right there, prayed. They don't give you the phrase Jesus used, right? All we know is Jesus is so amazed at this person's faith. And then they go back, and when they get to the house, guess what? The servant is fully healed. I started with Israel and Palestine because I think that's a situation that reminds us of this ancient Mosaic law that we ought to love the stranger. So what's the good news for the stranger this morning? The good news is that they are fully loved by God. I love this story because the, the Roman represented everything that would have been an enemy to Israel and the people of God. Yet we see how God's love for him opened him up to not only a faith, but a faith that blessed his servant, a faith that blessed the Jews, a faith that blessed the synagogue, a faith that blessed Capernaum, and a faith that blesses us today. That's faith. That's the faith of the centurion. They are fully loved by God. We ought to rejoice that when John wraps up Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he didn't say, for God so loved the Jews. For God so loved the Palestinians. For God so loved the Harrisburgians. Is that where we are? I don't even know, right? I, I just don't like Harrisburgers, you know? I, I, it's, getting, it's getting time to eat. I'm hungry, right? He says, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. So not only are these strangers loved by God, the command then is they ought to be loved by us too. Jesus builds on that. He says, hey, in the Mosaic law, we told you to love the stranger. I'm telling you, the stranger is your neighbor. In other places in the gospel, what does he say? The stranger is your brother. The stranger is your sister. And just in Luke, he's even told us, like, I don't care if they're your enemies, love them. I don't care if they curse you, bless them. I don't care if they hurt you, oppress you, pray for them, right? Jesus' command is to love the stranger too. 
So the good news of the stranger or the good news for the stranger must be that they are loved by God, but also that they're loved by us. That's our role to play. If someone's an enemy, we ought to make them a friend. If someone's an outsider, we ought to be making them an insider. If someone's following the ways of darkness, we ought to be shining the light to bring them back home. If someone is gay, we ought to be welcoming them in as Ezra, as citizens of God's kingdom. That is our role to play. That is the bridge we must make. So the good news for the stranger, and we see in this story, is that they can know and serve God. That should give you courage to love, but that should always give you encouragement <laughs> that our God is bigger than what we see. These Jewish leaders were just trying to save a servant. They didn't realize that Jesus was changing the world. These Jewish leaders were just trying to plead on behalf of their friend who was good to them. They didn't realize yet how good their God really is. These Jewish leaders were just trying to, to go there and be the bridge, right? But they didn't realize the bridge that Jesus wanted to break was not just to heal a servant, but to heal the world. To heal the world. And so in this story, we find an oppressor, a Roman, an outsider, an enemy used by God fully. Hearts change so that redemption can come to Israel and even to the world. Strangers can know and serve God because they have a role in God's kingdom. And we heard it in the call to worship. We see it in the scriptures. When God says, I want you to love the gear, I want you to remember you were gear in Egypt. And all of us in this room, the New Testament says what? We were once children of darkness. Now we're children of light. We were once enemies and strangers outside the commonwealth of Israel. Now we're citizens and daughters and sons of the king. We were once confined to the ways of darkness. Now we serve the light of the world, the prince of peace, the king of all kings. And so I think what that reminds us is, yes, strangers have know and serve God and have a role in God's kingdom. But hopefully what it reminds us is that they are also us, that we are also the stranger. Because every single one of us at some point was outside the kingdom of God. Every single one of us at some point didn't know who this God is. Every single one of us at some point was living even after even after we choose to follow God, we can act like an enemy of God. That's another sermon. We'll save that for another time, right? But even after we're saved, we can live in a way that doesn't please and honor God. But the strangers are us. And so my greatest challenge I got in the passage this week is, do I have the faith of this centurion? Because I got to confess, when I pray, I'm just like, well, God, I trust you. I believe in you. If you want to do it, you can do it. Your will be done, Right? That's a lazy prayer. That's my confession. That's a lazy prayer. And I get it. If that's what you feel, that's fine. God will meet you where you're at. But if that's how you always pray, that's not a prayer of faith. That's a prayer of maybe. And there's a difference. When this centurion prayed, when this centurion relied on Jesus, he didn't say, hey, your will be done. My servant might be healed. He expected God to move. And that's the way I want to challenge us to pray. No matter how hard the situation or how complicated the situation, whether it's Israel, Palestine, or even in our own hearts, even our own lives, even with our own people, may we pray for God to move. May we pray for God to intercede. May we trust that our God is good, our God is faithful, our God is true. May we trust that our God is able. 
that's the way we ought to pray. Not just hoping for the best, but knowing we know he who is best. And he who promises to do the best for us. May we pray with this kind of reliance. That's what I learned from this centurion today. That he believed that Jesus had authority to heal. That Jesus had power to heal. But more than that, Jesus had love and would heal. And so that's how I want us to pray. Trusting that our God is good, faithful, yes. But not just throwing it out there and hoping it sticks. But actually believing actually trusting, actually relying on God to move. And this morning, not all of us might feel the presence of God here. Not all of us know and see God moving, God working. But what I want to remind you is our God is bigger than what you feel. Our God's presence and touch is greater than what you can experience. And praise God, praise God. Praise God that he's working even if we don't see it. Amen? Amen. I'd like to call up the choir, um, the closing team, <laughs> um, as we have this final song. We're going to be singing a song that a lot of us may not know. It's called Shall Not Want. Again, as we pray, I'd like to invite any of the pastors still in the room up front. We'd love to pray for you in case you want to respond to something in the service. Or maybe there's someone on your heart this morning. Maybe there's someone in your life who either is a stranger or a foreigner. Or here's the hard part, there might be someone in your life that you've made a stranger or foreigner. Or that's made you feel like a stranger or foreigner. But I believe we serve a God who redeems, a God who reconciles, a God who releases to set us free. So my prayer for all of us is that as we go forth, may we be people who are not just bridge builders. We may be people who truly, truly have the faith that trusts God to move. Amen? Let's stand and sing together. running over, running over, and I shall 